We're here at the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel. We've come all this way in order to teach this really wonderful message on the Beatitudes. You know, somewhere in this very close vicinity, Jesus stood and he taught this actual message. When we come to Israel, one of the things we have to be careful to tell people is not on this uh, particular site, but around this site, Jesus taught this message. We don't know if it was right here where I'm sitting uh, or if it was just a few yards from here, but it was right in this vicinity called the Beatitudes where Christ taught this powerful message. The reference is found in Matthew chapter 5 and it'll be on the screens at all the campuses. So if you don't have your Bible, you can just follow behind me. It begins this way, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. If you think about that, that's probably the polar opposite of what this world offers. The world never ever would say blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. It's more blessed are the ones who are first for they'll inherit or take the earth. Here Christ offers us blessed are those who are gentle in spirit, those who are lowly before him, those who don't uh, press to get their own way, but allow him to work his way in their lives. They'll end up inheriting the earth. In other words, when it's all said and done, if you allow the master to have his work in your life, you'll have his inheritance. Howdy folks. That seems to throw you every time I do that. Does this work better? Hi, church. It's like the howdy thing. We're in Colorado. It's all good. Hey, if you are visiting this weekend uh, a little bit different than we normally do, we're taking the Beatitudes, and rather than going, uh, taking all eight Beatitudes and doing eight weeks with it, we divided it in half. We're having our teaching team each share one of the Beatitudes, um, so we're doing two per weekend, and we're taking about 20 minutes each to do that. Last week, Pastor DJ and Pastor Terry started this new series, did a fantastic job. If you heard them, let's give them some love. I thought they did excellent. Really appreciated that. Today, it will be myself and Pastor Evan, and I'm going to begin with uh, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, interestingly enough, last um, weekend, I was invited to, uh, to teach at a men's advance and at a church. And... Um, had a great time doing it, but one of the requirements was, would you fill out um, sort of a, uh, a little bit about yourself? Not a resume, really, but just would, would you just give us some information that we can introduce you by? And so I sat down and I began to write what it is about myself that people who don't know me would need to know. Uh, let, me, let me just throw this out to you. If you've never um, ever had the opportunity to do something like that, it's really strange when you have to sit down and start writing things uh, but you're tempted to make up a lot of stuff when you don't feel like you got a lot to put on there. And so I was writing all these different things down, and I kept taking the paper, crumpling it up, throwing it away, taking crumb. And finally, I came here. Here I've come up with my new life statement. Here it is, and I think it fits with this message. See if this wouldn't be how you would describe yourself. I wrote it this way: I am a nobody, trying to tell everybody about a somebody. If I had to break it all down, pull everything else out of it, I would suppose that's probably the easiest way to say who I am and what I'm trying to do. What is it about when we present ourselves that way that it becomes attractive to people? Now think about it for a minute. Somehow we all identify with that and somehow immediately our guard goes down and we're attracted to that versus this introduction. <laughs> Here's my pedigree. 
On my father's side, distantly we're related to Miles Standish, who was a pilgrim. My daughters, if they want to, can join the Daughters of the American Revolution because of that. On my mom's side, we have an Indian heritage, and one of them was a chief, so I'm Indian royalty. How about that right there? <laughs> I did well in school, played four instruments. Everybody wanted me on their team. When I graduated from high school, I had more opportunities to go to college, and everybody wanted me to pledge. I've done a 27-year ministry, and it's been really successful. I've been married for 30 years, and my wife adores me. I have five children. Now, you might go, you're really into children. No, I'm into their mom, but my children love me also. <laughs> and I have a really bright future. How many of you are excited about that right there? What is it about introducing ourselves that way versus the other way that either causes people to reject and to almost pull back away as opposed to when we come through the meek route or the humble route or the, the route of humility that causes people to immediately drop their guard and identify with us, doesn't it? Almost, here's what I found. Almost people are willing to give you their heart instantly to listen to you. As opposed to if you go the other way, trying to impress people. One of my favorite speakers said it this way one time. If you want to impress people, tell them about your successes. But if you want to impact them, tell them where you struggle. Isn't that the truth? That when we're willing to humble ourselves, when we're willing to open up, when we're willing to show who we really are, that it causes people to come towards us, doesn't it? Rather than to be repelled by us. All right, so we come to this interesting beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Jesus is teaching Probably, most scholars agree, the message was no more than a 30-minute message and maybe the best message ever taught on the planet. He is concise, precise, and unbelievably clear in what he says. Matthew 5, 5, look at it again. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, quickly, let me tell you what meek isn't, what it isn't. Somehow in our day and age, the word meek has taken on the connotation of the idea of of being weak, pitiful, pathetic, wimply, sickly, or impotent. Somehow without power. Somehow, somehow insignificant. And that is not what the Bible means when Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Here, here's the issue. When Paul was writing this, and we end up in the gospel, I realize Jesus spoke it, but later on, as Paul is teaching on meekness, and Paul is teaching on the idea of how we approach and we become like Christ, when Paul is writing most of his gospel, he's writing to a world that is, that is very, it's a, um, oh, I wrote it, you know, look, look right here. It's, a, it's an interesting, it's a honor-shame-based society. Honor is everything to them, and shame is to be avoided at all costs. In fact, if you were to go back 2,000 years ago, if I were to have introduced myself as I'm a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody, I would have been laughed out of the place. If I had introduced myself the other way, that was the common or normal way that a person tried to introduce themselves in the world. So back 2,000 years ago and before, that was normal. It was normal to boast of yourself and to brag. And in fact, if you used humility, humility was seen as a weakness. It was seen almost as, a, as, as, as something's wrong with you if you come at somebody with humility. The way to overcome is to not be humble, but to be the greatest. 
and establish yourself as the greatest. And then Jesus comes along and teaches this, and Paul takes all of Jesus' teaching throughout all of the New Testament, begins to teach this entirely different mindset than what the world has. I put down in your um, notes right here, Paul is writing to a culture that is honor and shame-based. In the Greco-Roman world at the time, honor was universally regarded as the ultimate asset that a human being could attain. Really, these three things were true of the world at that time. Avoiding shame was the highest priority for all families. Any family that endured shame, any child that did anything shameful, brought shame on his entire family, and it could discredit you in the society. It was to be avoided at all costs. The second one, this was true for those people at that time. This society rarely, if ever, placed any value on humility. Humility was seen as the ultimate weakness. Jesus is also speaking to a people who felt it was worse than death to be humiliated. In fact, death was to be chosen before humiliation. It was an incredibly different mindset. The highest insult that could be given to a person was to call them humble. It was an incredibly different mindset. Let me quickly then take you into the idea of what the Bible means when it begins to talk about the meek, what it is. By definition, the easiest way to describe it would be these three words. It's power under control, but that doesn't do justice to the idea of meekness. So let me use Jesus. If you're a believer, is Jesus supposed to be the rule for how we live our lives? Isn't he supposed to be the one that we aim our lives towards? So using him then as the way to define humility, I wrote it this way. Humility would be the noble choice to forgo your status in life and to deploy your resources to use your influence for the good of others before you use it for yourself. Think about it for a moment. Is this not what Jesus did? Such that a humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power, not for themselves, but for the service of other people. Isn't that a great definition of humility? It's not a, in fact, here's the truth of the matter. You've got to be a strong person in who you really are to be a humble person. Because if you're going to hold power, but not for yourself, for the good of others. Listen, most people who get power, what do they do with it? For themselves, huh? It's all about them. Think about it for a moment. Here Jesus comes with ultimate power, but he doesn't use it for his benefit. He uses it for the benefit of others. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 through 8, Paul takes the teaching of Jesus and begins to break or to change the mindset of that day. And this is what this scripture says. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of, what's the word? When I say that, our mouths open and words come out. Try one more time. Do nothing out of? selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but to each of you the interest of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus look at this who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God 
something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Yes or no, that is the exact definition that I gave of what humility is. It's someone who holds great power, but not for themselves, who has great resources, but they don't consume it all to themselves. They use it for the benefit of other people. So when Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, it's not the weak, it's not the wimp, it's not the pushover, it's actually, look at this, it's those who are really grounded in who they are in Christ that are so strong in that, that it doesn't have to be used for their own benefit. They can use it to help other people. So Jesus is saying that person will inherit the earth. I think when we look at that scripture, many times we tend to think the, the weak, the ones who are downcast in society, when it's all said and done, God will give them for an inheritance, the earth. That's not what that means. Jesus is teaching the one who who chooses to go ahead and be humble in and of themselves, the one who foregoes their own reputation for the sake of another, that person automatically causes everybody else to come to them. Think about it. In our society, never confuse greatness with fame. Okay, let me get, Madonna is famous. Mother Teresa is great. Both of them are well-known. Which one do you want to be like? Someone like, Madonna. You! <laughs> Don't get it. All right, here's the rub. Here's the rub. Let, let, me, let me see if I can do this for you. The problem with, with, with believers in the first century, the entire mindset, you and I today, we, we see humility as a badge of honor, yes or no? It's good to be a humble person. We see humility as we, we admire humility. And in fact, think about it for a moment. The people in your life that you're closest to, I bet are humble people. Here's what I know universally. When you have a prideful person in your life, you repel them, don't you? You do not let them close to you. You do not let them inside. You do not let them, look, you may associate with them, but you don't let them get close because you know what a prideful person will do to you. They'll hurt you, yes or no? But humble people, we allow very close. Humble people end up inheriting the world because humility draws people, give you everything because they can trust you when you're a humble person. Do you get it? Let me, let me try to go this way. All right, so here's the mindset 2,000 years ago today. Today we see humility as a badge of honor. 2,000 years ago, it's one of the worst things that can happen to you. Where's the, how did it change? How do we go from that boasting and bragging and getting the one up was the way to live your life to understanding that those who are humble actually inherit? The, how do we go from this to this? It's an amazing fact. This is, it's, it's an unbelievable truth. The cross of Christ changed everything in the world. Even for people, uh, uh, the very last thing I put in your notes, you look at, don't look at it right now. I knew I should have said that. Everybody goes, what? Don't do it right now. I'll save it. Wait till I get there. A, a secular university 
did a study on the very fact of humility, tracing the origins of how did we go from this mindset 2,000 years ago to the mindset we have today, and they tra secular university without a religious department whatsoever came to this conclusion that when Christ died on the cross, his disciples were faced with this horrible truth, one of two choices. Either he wasn't as great as, he, as we thought he was, or we've got to redefine what greatness is. And they chose to redefine greatness as not being the one who is the top, but the one who gives everything up for everybody else. And it changed the mindset of the world so that even people today who deny Jesus even existed, the very proof that he did exist is that the mindset changed. And that was done by a secular university who found that. Isn't that interesting? I find that that's crucial in understanding about inheriting the earth. So the followers of Jesus were forced to deal with these issues. One, Jesus wasn't as great as they first thought, or greatness had to be redefined to fit with the fact that he seemingly had a shameful end. Real, real quickly, in that day and in that time, there were three modes of capital punishment. Beheading, burned to death, or the cross. The first two were the ones that were chosen for this reason. The cross was humiliation. And humiliation was to be avoided at all costs. So when a person was put to death during that time, they would ask either to be burned or to be beheaded. Never the cross, because the cross, the cross was used for one purpose only. It was to shame and humiliate the person that was being crucified. Now today, we look at the cross, every believer, how do you see the cross if you're a believer? It's the ultimate end, isn't it? It, it proves ultimate love. That mindset during that time, it was shame. It was humiliation. It was to be avoided. All. So here's Jesus' disciples who are thinking, this guy's going to come right all the wrong, put everything back. He's going to put the Jews in their rightful place. He's going to make sure that the Romans are put in their rightful place, and God's kingdom is coming to the earth. And Jesus is telling them the whole time, I've come to give my life up. And then he dies the most shameful death that could be given at that time, and the disciples are faced with either he's not as great as, he, as we thought he was, or we've got to redefine what greatness is. And they came to understand greatness is not this, and being the king, greatness is being the one who's willing to give that up in order to save everybody else. that an interesting thought right there? Here was the game changer in the whole thing. Listen to this. Humility is a chosen issue. Humiliation is thrust upon you. Jesus wasn't humiliated. Jesus chose humility in order to save us, didn't he? Every disciple of Christ, if you're a believer, listen. God is not asking you for humiliation. He is asking you for humility so that you can reach the world. When Jesus said, the humble, the meek shall inherit the earth, here's a better understanding of it. Those who live their life like Jesus can end up helping save people like Jesus did. What attracts people to Christ? It is not a person who is boastful, is it? It's not, listen, the prosperity gospel did nothing but turn people away from Jesus. The only ones who liked that message were the preachers preaching it 
and the people in the church who bought into it? Yes or no? no? Don't misunderstand me. God wants to bless you. God likes prosperity. But I'm talking about the way out there that God wants me to be rich. That everything here is for me to consume. That's not the message of the gospel. Humility starts from a position of dignity, strength, and a healthy, healthy sense of my own worth and abilities. All right, so I wrote it in real simple here. How then do the meek or the humble inherit the earth? Think about it. The people we love and admire the most have this quality above every other quality in their life. The ones that we admire and the ones that we are drawn to are humble people. Right below that, the difference between fame and greatness is just what I said. Mother Teresa and Madonna, in our world today, we do and are attracted to famous people. But ultimately, it's the ones who are humble and who give their lives for greater causes that people follow. We may buy tickets to see Madonna, but I bet we don't lay our life down for her. True? Matthew 23, 32. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a paradoxical kingdom. As I come down to the end of my time, I would just simply say this to you right here. I listened to a speaker recently who taught it this way. He said there's three levels in Christianity that all people come to. The first one, you're born again and you realize, hey, I'm pretty good. God loves me. So then the second one is we get in church and we realize it's not about me. It's us. We're pretty good. But he said there's a third level if you're willing to go there that all Christians have to reach to. It's not I'm good or we're good. It's that God is good. The higher he goes, the lower we go. Right? That makes sense? All right. Lord, take this message this little bit of time that we had together. And I pray, Father, as we begin to contemplate what it means to be the meek, what it means to be the gentle, what it means to be the humble, would you take this? Would you help us to understand it and apply it in our lives? God, we want to be like Jesus. Folks, we want to be like Jesus. And we give you the right, Lord, to work this in our heart. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to talk about hungering and thirsting. And I don't know about you, but for me right now, it's almost lunchtime. And I am hungry and I am thirsty. In fact, it's hot right now and I really could use a drink of water. I don't know if you've ever been at that place in your life, but hunger and thirst, man, there's a spiritual connection, but there's a physical connection. I tend to believe when the spiritual touches the physical, a lot of things come into place. Here Jesus teaches us those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. What does that mean? Well, if you understand anything about the Bible, you'll know that Christ is our righteousness. And here he's teaching, those who hunger and thirst for him will be satisfied. And satisfied with what? Satisfied with him. I want to encourage you right now to open your heart and get ready. I pray that God will create a hunger and a thirst inside of you that he'll satisfy with himself today. campus pastor over at the Lakewood campus. 
and this weekend marks one year that the Lakewood campus has been up and running. So if you are watching online or at any of the campuses, uh, Lone Tree, Castle Rock, or Highlands Ranch, I want you to know that you played a very important role in launching that and sustaining that campus, and it is up and going and good reports all around. And I wanna say happy Mother's Day to my mom who will be watching at the Lakewood campus. Uh, I love you so much. And we're gonna dive into the next beatitude, and that is found in verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What it doesn't say is this, blessed are those who attain righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. I know growing up that uh, my family, it might be like yours. When one or some or all of us got a little bit hungry, it was like a disaster. Don't let us be in the same car together without eating something for an extended period of time because then all of a sudden it's just like nipping at each other and, and saying things that we shouldn't be saying and it's all because we're hungry, right? But there's a blessedness that's associated with a craving that all of us have. One of the things that's interesting about hunger and thirst is that it proves that we can't sustain ourselves on our own, right? We need something external to keep us going. We are not robots, we're human beings. And so we need something external. And so Jesus is sitting on that hill and one of the statements he makes in that famous sermon is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Well, if you were sitting on that mountainside and you heard Jesus say that, I think one of the things that you would have immediately thought of Maybe you would have glanced if there were some in the crowd. Maybe you would have thought about some. Maybe you would have been related to some. And those were the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Those were the guys that really did try to attain to righteousness. In your notes, it says they have 613 commandments that they tried to follow. These guys, even though we've kind of demonized them in our day and age now, we kind of look at them like they were on the wrong side of the Jesus crowd, right? They were the guys that Jesus kind of picked fights with. But those were, if we were living in that time, would have been people that we would have looked up to. We would have listened to, the, to them as they taught. We would have wanted to be more like them. Now, they set a standard so high that it was difficult for anybody to attain to that. They made rules on top of their rules just so that they wouldn't break those rules, <laughs> okay? They tithed on their spices. Now, I was the business pastor here for a little while, and uh, I know that in the course of time that I was there, we never got any plastic baggies full of spices. <laughs> we've got people that tithe, and we've got people that give, but I haven't yet seen anybody bring in a tenth of their spice from their spice drawer, right? <laughs> so these guys went above and beyond. And so when they heard Jesus on that hillside say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, they probably patted each other on the back because that's what they were doing to a certain degree. They were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so that's righteousness according to the Pharisees. But at the end of this sermon, if you flip through towards the end of the chapter five of, of Matthew, you know that Jesus says this. It's found in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, wait a minute. 
These guys crossed off every T and dotted every I. They went above and beyond. They were, the, they were the good guys in that society. And Jesus gets done making a list of Beatitudes, of thing, things that we can live our life by. And then he flips it real quick and says, hey, but you got to be better than those guys if you want to play a part in this kingdom. Well, that would have made me, you, all of us potentially walk home thinking very hard about how do we do this? And I think we would come to the conclusion, I don't think it can be done. If you were here uh, several weeks ago now, you saw Pastor John and Pastor Marcus jump as high as they could. Then the goal was to reach the moon. And it didn't matter who out jumped who, they both fell short. So it doesn't matter if you're better than I am or if I'm better than you are, if my righteousness doesn't exceed that which I could never even attain to anyways, then I can't play a role in this. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we need someone to make a way for us, right? If I hit a dead end and say, if those are the rules of the game and I can't play within that context, I don't qualify for the prize, then I have to have the game maker change the rules or I have to have the game maker come and allow me to participate, right? So let's go through a couple of verses here that are found in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, should be in your notes. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now that was written to the Corinthians. Corinth sat on an isthmus of land that was between two bodies of water and two great masses of land. What that did was it made it a port city, both for land transfer and for sea transfer. There were taxes and there were, and there were things that you had to do to get goods from one side of the city to the other. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. But that city wasn't just a nice city. As you can imagine, put yourself into a situation where there's a lot of commerce and a lot of money changing hands, and the tendency is sometimes for people to cheat each other. And so there was a lot of things that happened. There were sailors that came to that port, and there were merchants from far away. It had every person from any known area of land that did business in that area came and went through that place. And there was a phrase that it said, it said, well, live like a Corinthian. You might compare it to some of the larger cities across this nation, maybe a Las Vegas or maybe a Los Angeles, something like that. This was a very corrupt society. You could not live in this society. You couldn't be born in the society or die in the society without being very aware of the prevalence of sin. So this is who Paul is writing these words to. He says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Well, wait a minute, if you're a Corinthian, you would go, wait, that's none of us, because all of us know sin. Some were born out of wedlock, some had horrible things happen to them throughout the course of their life. So to find somebody that knew no sin, that would be a high claim in and of itself. But then Paul is telling this budding church in Corinth that had to be a bastion for righteousness in their own time and in their own rights, he said, you know what? Where we couldn't attain to the righteousness of the Pharisees. If the people in Israel and Jerusalem couldn't, then how could the people of Corinth expect to do that? So then Paul writes to them and he says, 
the game maker had a game changer, and he brought somebody who knew no sin and made him to be that sin so that in him we could be the righteousness of God. So there was another instance that explains righteousness, and that's found in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 21, it says, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we look back and we say, okay, well, I'm going to follow the law and I'm going to do everything that I can to attain to righteousness, I'll prove Jesus in his own words. I can do it. If nobody else could, then I could do it. But then Paul still gets you. And he says, if righteousness could even be attained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So who was it that Paul was writing to in the book of Galatians? The church of Galatia. This was a church that ends up being involved in a unique circumstance in church history. See, what happens is Paul went there and got a bunch of Gentiles saved. And the believers, the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem were kind of surprised. Like, wait a minute, this Jesus thing is not just a Jewish thing, it's a whole world thing, and so they actually had a sit-down powwow meeting, and they got together, and they talked about it, but what happened in the course of time was that after Paul went, there were some Jewish people who went to Galatia, and they traveled while Paul wasn't there. They were called the Judaizers. They were there to correct Paul's incorrect teaching. What they said that, they sh that you should do is if now you've accepted Christ as a Gentile believer, but you're missing one thing. In order to be righteous, you have to follow the law. Now, men, part of the law was to be circumcised. And so you can imagine that a lot of those Gentile believers looked at each other and they thought, I don't know about this Jesus thing. <laughs> And so that's what sent Paul back to Jerusalem to talk with James and Peter. And they, and they discussed, what does this new faith mean in the context of Jewish believers and Gentile believers? And they came to the conclusion that if righteousness could be attained through something that we do, then Christ died for no reason. So they established that you don't have to become a Jew to believe in Jesus and to carry his message. So, as we continue here, he is our righteousness. We are to hunger and thirst for him because if we can't attain righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, then we have to understand that he becomes our righteousness. So what does it look like to hunger and thirst for our righteousness? What does it look like to hunger and thirst for more of Jesus in our life? Because if we just want more rules and more regulations, that will only get us so far. We will be good people, but that's not the righteousness that Jesus came to instill in each and every one of us. So what does it look like for us to hunger and thirst after him? Well, there's a little guy in the Bible, and it's found in his stories found in Luke chapter 19. You guys know him from probably Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? So here's the story. Jesus is walking, and it says Jesus is walking and planning to pass through a town called Jericho. Jericho's the oldest city in the whole world, most scholars say. And so this city was destroyed by Joshua, right? 
and then it was rebuilt, and you can read a story about that. But now there's a thriving society in that city, and Jesus is walking into, and he was going to go out of Jericho. And as he's walking into Jericho, there's a blind man that calls out for him, right? And Jesus stops, brings the blind man to him, and asks the blind man what he wants, and ends up restoring sight to this blind man. So the, there was probably already a crowd following Jesus, but then he heals a blind man. You can imagine what that crowd is like, right? And so when word gets to this tax collector in Jericho, Zacchaeus, he thinks, I've got to see this guy who I've already probably heard about. I've got to see him, but I'm short. And so he's trying to press through the crowd just to see Jesus, and then he gets a brilliant idea. I'm going to climb a tree to get a better look, right? Now, it says that he was a chief tax collector. He was a wealthy man. Think about somebody that you know that's pretty dignified, owns their own business, has everything put together and accounted for, and then imagine that person in your life scurrying up a tree and hanging, maybe wrapping his limbs around a branch and looking, trying to get a view of something that the crowd has obviously been paying attention to. And so I get this picture of this guy. He might still be even wearing a robe, and he's climbing a tree, and Jesus comes closer and closer and closer, and Zacchaeus has gotten away with it up until now. Nobody's noticed because everybody's eyes are on him. But you know what happened? Jesus stopped and looked directly at him, and he said these words, Zacchaeus, come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, I told you earlier, Jesus was just going to pass through Jericho, but I challenge you to look in the Bible and find any other place where Jesus is compelled from something external to his own will to do something. He said, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. There's something in your response to my presence that says, I can't move on from here. Your response to my presence is this, I must enter your home. So for all of us who want more of the Lord's presence in our homes today, would we be willing to say, God, I can't do this on my own? I can't. But I'll be willing to become undignified for more of your presence in my life, whatever that looks like, waking up earlier, staying up late, carrying my Bible just for the chance that I might have 15 minutes to spend reading it, changing the station in my car and plugging in some worship music just for more and more of, of God's presence in our life. So I'm going to close here with something that we typically do every week, but I want to put it into a little bit more context. See, we participate in communion, and we can do it individually, and we can do it corporately, and, and to be honest, the way that we do it doesn't matter. But I think in the context of Jesus being our righteousness and us consuming him, he said, if you don't eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part in me. What crazy words are that? You know that most of his disciples left at that point. But let's just put into context, you'll find a little plastic cup with a wafer in it at your seat. And there's no special 
rhyme or reason for how we eat or drink and participate in the Lord's Supper. But let me take you back to that night. And I'll read those verses, and we'll just hold on to this until the very end, and then we'll take both together. Jesus was sitting, eating with his disciples. And they were participating in the Passover. Now, the Jewish culture, they do a very good job of remembering certain events in their history. And that ties them in to the whole story of their people. And it gives them purpose for what they do. And so the Passover is a meal of remembrance. And you know what they were remembering? They were remembering that a time in their history was spent in slavery. They were remembering that there was 400 years when they stayed in Egypt, not of their own right or their own accord, they stayed as slaves. And then God sent a deliverer. And on one very special night, through instruction, they were told this, I want you to sacrifice a lamb, and I want you to paint the blood of that lamb over your doorpost. And then I want you to take bread unleavened and eat it in haste with that roasted lamb. And in so doing, it's going to mark and it's going to separate you as the people of God. It's going to mark you so that you don't have to participate in the judgment on the Egyptian taskmasters. And so they did that, and they put blood over their doorposts, and you guys know the story of the mass exodus out of Egypt, and they were saved, and they were delivered. And so it's that story where Jesus and his disciples and everybody else in that nation on that night were participating in a meal. It was people who never felt the whip of the Egyptian on their back, but they did it to remember that they don't ever want to get back to a place of slavery. And so in the context of that meal, Jesus takes the bread and he takes the cup and he makes a new covenant. But where the old covenant was externally marked on the doorpost, this covenant was internally ingested. I think sometimes in church, we can be externally marked. But I think the call to righteousness is Jesus saying, come after me, make much of me, and with me you will find your righteousness. And so if you take this and pull off the first layer of plastic, you'll find a wafer, and it's not very special. But I know this, our God is in the business of taking little things, common things sometimes, and making them holy. And he can redeem a wafer that's not going to taste like a lot. And he's going to say, this is us renewing a covenant. So if you have never done this in a way that says, I am marked internally by the blood of Jesus Christ, then this is you today saying this, Jesus, I believe for the first time. And if taking a little plastic cup and a little wafer is me being like Zacchaeus and climbing that tree, 
Jesus, whatever it takes, I want all of you. Jesus, whatever it takes, I want to catch a glimpse of you. And in so doing, if you'll invite yourself into my life and into my home, then I'll do that. So let's take this wafer and eat it. And then you peel back the other layer. And the bread represents his body and the juice represents his blood. And in so doing, we take this together and we say, Jesus, you are our righteousness. Come and be in me all that you can be. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. And where there was no way, you made a way. And so we accept your gift, we accept your sacrifice, and we claim the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in our lives and give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.